0: Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. And Today we're going to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 16, uh, kind of picking up where we left off last week as we were talking about looking like Jesus, being like Jesus. And today on this Mother's Day, we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit, which I think is an especially uh, appropriate uh, thing for a certain number of reasons I'll share with you in a minute. One of my favorite quotes on uh, motherhood uh, came from a mother who uh, said this, if it was going to be easy, it would have never started with labor. And I guess from the very beginning, there's a sense, moms, that you have to work and that this is maybe the hardest job you'll ever really love because there are real challenges in Uh, being a mother. You know this week I was just kind of thinking through uh, from a biblical perspective which is what we said last week we needed to do, that we have to be careful about our own hearts and our own uh, predisposition towards things and instead as believers turn to the Word of God and let it inform us about what we do, how we act, what we say, how we respond, etc. And I was thinking through it uh, about what was the first thing that God said to a woman. And interestingly enough, Um, It's in uh, Genesis, of course, and it says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I think that as a man, as a pastor who's looked at that passage many times, I I think that many of us make the mistake of solely thinking of that verse in what's called the Dominion Covenant as um, a a verse on procreation and therefore, of course, appropriate for Mother's Day. But really the idea is be fruitful and... Multiply. And and the idea of fruitfulness just kind of caught my attention, of course, because the Garden of Eden is described as this uh, very beautiful, lush, uh, wonderful, perfect environment. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized you know, we started out in a garden, a beautiful, lush, fruitful garden. And then, when you think about it in terms of Revelation, we're going to end. And one of the things that the Bible says that heaven is like is like a garden, and uh, that the tree of life bears its fruits in the uh, 12 different seasons. And then, in between, of course, the Bible uses the idea of fruitfulness for uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible tells us that Israel is God's garden. Uh, tells us that God wanted Israel to be fruitful, and then of course in the New Testament Jesus compared Israel to a fig tree and stressed the importance of fruitfulness, and then in the upper room as we uh, spoke about it last week, he talked about the vine and the branches and being fruitful in our lives. And so um, I think on the other side of last week's message of the Bible saying God designed this plan of justification to be made just as if I'd never sinned through his sovereign work, to be day by day sanctified to be like Jesus, and then finally one day we know we're going to be like Jesus in glorification. What a beautiful picture that is, but then it really begs the question, okay, if God's done all this work to, to make me like Jesus, then what does looking like Jesus really mean? And so I thought about it this week, and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of places we could go to understand that in kind of what I would call summary form. You could go to the Beatitudes, and there it tells us what the attitude of Jesus was like. We could look at the big, exciting Christological passages. There are five of them in the New Testament that are considered the big passages about Jesus, and we could do it there. But maybe the most succinct passage of Scripture on what it means to be like Jesus when it comes to our daily lives is found in Galatians chapter 5 when the Bible describes for us the fruit of the Spirit. And what we want to do today and uh, maybe for the next two weeks is just look at the fruits of the Spirit. We'll divide the fruits of the Spirit into three parts. Uh, It's kind of a classic way of studying the fruits of the Spirit. The first three, love, joy, and peace talk to us about our relationship with God and what God has done depositing these things in us and manifesting these fruits within us. And then the second week, a week from today, we'll look at the, the relational dimension, the relationships that we have with others, and we'll see the patience, kindness, goodness aspect And we'll see what our relationships with others should look like. And then finally, we'll look at this final aspect uh, of our life when we look at these final three fruits of the Spirit. When we see things like faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And and really that covers our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with ourselves, And it gives us what I would call a really clear, big, and good picture of what it is to be like Jesus. Now, I want us to read the passage of Scripture today, and I I want us to see not just the list of the fruits of the Spirit, but, but I want us to see the path towards the fruits of the Spirit, because there are three really important things that kind of frame this discussion on the fruits of the Spirit that really help us understand Why the fruit of the Spirit should be the natural expression of our spiritual life that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 16 of uh, Galatians chapter 5 and let's read along. You follow along as I read out loud. It says, so I say live, or if you're looking at some translations it may say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. So there's a little contrast here that's beginning to be built, the flesh versus the spirit. And, of course, Paul talks about that in Romans 7 and 8 extensively as well. And this is kind of a mini-commentary on that larger passage of Scripture of this battle between the fleshly life and this battle between this new spiritual life. He says. Uh, he goes on and says, "For the sinful nature does not desire what is, or desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want." And that's a familiar phrase, of course, from Romans chapter seven. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law, for the acts of the sinful nature are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty challenging words, isn't it? We'll look at some of what that path involves, really particularly three things. And now he comes to the fruit that should be born in our life. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, today we're going to look at the two aspects of this, the pathway to fruitfulness and then the actual expressions of fruitfulness. Uh, Let's spend a few minutes just looking at the uh, three points that Paul makes in this pathway towards fruitfulness. And the first thing that he really highlights for us is that there is a dependence upon the Holy Spirit a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You may just want to say that to yourself, a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You know, that cuts against our flesh pretty quickly, doesn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I think most people love to have control over their own life, and a sense of, of self-reliance, not spiritual dependence. But, but the Bible tells us that, that the fruitful life is only possible if there is a spiritual de- dependence. As a matter of fact, Paul goes to a great length to impress this point upon us. You probably know that the number seven is a pretty important number in the Bible. And it is. It's a, a numerology that tells us that, okay, this is the number of perfection. It's the number of the ideal. Well, interestingly, in this short passage that we've just read, seven times in the original language, Paul appeals to the Spirit's work within us. It's almost as if he says, we're not just spiritually dependent, but we are fully spiritually dependent. And if we are going to get involved in this perfecting work, of God. We have got to let the Spirit of God do its work. Now, that's an interesting argument in the book of Galatians because as one of our Bible study classes is studying today, they kick off their study in Galatians. And uh, one of the teachers of that class came to me between services and said, you know, wow, what a helpful introduction to Galatians because if you remember the Galatians, the Galatian church was the one that started with the gospel But it wasn't long until they put the gospel on the shelf and went back to their own self-reliance in living. I think it reminds us, and Paul reminds us here in this book repeatedly, of the quick reversal of the spiritual lessons and spiritual battles that we have won and how we can surrender the beautiful, precious things that God accomplishes in the gospel and and quickly give up on them. As a matter of fact, in in, uh, Galatians chapter 1, Here's how Paul begins his epistle. He says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or who's cast their spell upon you that you started with the gospel by faith, but now you've turned around and you're trying to do it by works? And, and Paul makes that point to us in the Scripture. He, he says to us, as a matter of fact, in the book of Galatians, avoid the danger of legalism, And avoid the danger of license. Now if you've never heard those words before, remember legalism is to think I can create a checklist of what I believe God requires of me. And in checking those boxes, I'll be okay with God if I check the boxes. As a matter of fact, the the gospel cuts against all of that. The gospel says I'm not okay no matter how many boxes I can check. As a matter of fact I am broken in sinfulness and we're going to see the list in just a moment and he leaves no one untouched by by the list of sinfulness that that he describes And, and it's a lot like what he does in the book of Romans to get us all guilty before the Lord when he says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord and that's exactly what he's trying to do there to say hey there is no list of righteousness that you can keep that's going to make it okay with God. Now in the same way he appeals to license and says, hey, I'll just do whatever I want and live however I want and, and God will love me. And, and the idea there is it's this rebellious godlike attitude that says, hey, I'm just going to live any way I want, when in reality the Bible says that the gospel takes into account what the law accomplished in convicting us of sin And the gospel that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection accomplishes in becoming the substitute for our sin. And when we realize the love of Jesus that put him upon the cross, what our list was powerless to do, our love for what Jesus has done for us empowers and mobilizes us to do. And that's the great tension that every believer is always dealing with and that Paul argues in the book of Galatians, listen, walk on that narrow path, not of license, not of of legalism, but walk in love with God. And, of course, that word love becomes the very first fruit of the Spirit. So the first thing he says on this journey is, hey, make sure that you are aware of the work of the Spirit. The second thing that he says is this, is he says, understand the challenge of your sin nature. Uh, Paul goes to a great length. As a matter of fact, the majority of this passage is about the sin nature. And, And he's trying to argue for us how challenging it is to bear the fruit of the Spirit because of the sinful nature of the flesh. Now, he divides his list of sins into three different categories. He describes the sensual, he describes the spiritual, and he describes the social. Now, the first is the sensual, and he uses these terms of human sexual expression, and he says, don't fall into the trap of thinking that following after worldly pleasures according to the flesh is not something that that we are immune to as spiritual beings, There was a a group of people called the Gnostics who divided the spiritual from the fleshly. And Paul probably has in mind his early conversations there of saying, look, just because you're spiritual beings doesn't mean you're not dealing with sensual issues. And of course, if you know much about the first century, you know that it was a hyper-sexualized culture, much like our culture is today. And here Paul is saying, look, on the list of challenges that you're dealing with are the issues of human sexuality. Understand that feeding your flesh and feeding your desires is not going to lead to a spiritual life. As a matter of fact, it's going to lead to a sensual life and separate you from God. Now, that's not the only thing on his list. Notice, if you will, the spiritual issues that are listed there. And the spiritual issues kind of get your attention because it's a little unusual. It's witchcraft and idolatry. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you step back and you go, now, that's kind of an interesting list that he puts. Is that really a list that I need for the first century? Well, it really is an interesting list because it is incredibly relevant for the 21st century just like it was for the 1st century. In the 1st century, we think maybe of idols and spells. And granted, there are still idolaters and people who participate in witchcraft and do those sorts of things in the 21st century, but it's not as what we might call mainstreamed in the culture as it was in the 1st century. But here's the point. As a matter of fact, the Bible presses this point deeply into each one of our lives. It says that any time any one of us puts something on the throne of our life other than God, we have become an idolater. It was John Calvin that said the human heart is an idol-making factory. You see, it's so easy for me to put my selfish ambitions, my vain pursuits... The things that I put my confidence in, it might be your retirement account, it might be your family, it might be some substitute for God. Here's how Paul addresses it. He uses in this passage the word pharmacology. If you hear the word pharmacist in there, you're exactly right. The, the idea is that anything that I try to make me feel better other than God is becoming a substitute to God and becoming an idol... In my life. And the Bible says this that we tear down those strongholds and let the spiritual work of God take place in our life. And so the second idea is not just the sensual, but the spiritual. Now, here's the final list, and interestingly, it's the longest list. He he talks to us about the social sins. And notice he talks about the fighting and the anger and the bitterness and the discord. Anything that breaks down our relationships with God. Now, interestingly enough, if you notice the pattern, The pattern is a relationship with God, a spiritual condition within ourself... And now relationships with others. Interestingly, that's the same three categories that we're going to see the fruits of the Spirit fall into. Our relationship with God, love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, our relationship with others. And then gentleness and self-control, faithfulness in relationship to ourselves. Listen, Paul had a very well-knit-together plan in mind when he wrote this passage of Scripture to the Galatians. And the Holy Spirit has a very good plan in mind as we read it today. You see, maybe more than ever in an American society in the last 200 years, we're dealing with fits of rage and jealousy and breakdown in society. And the Bible tells us what's to blame for that. It's it's the issue of sin. And, And it tells us what the solution to that is. It is surrendering our life to the Holy Spirit, walking in grace with Christ, and then letting that flow out of our individual lives in right relationship with God and in right relationship with one another. And that's why Jesus would sum up the entire law by saying... What is the summary of the law? To love God and to love others. It has that orientation that reorients us in our entire life. Now, here's the third thing that he says. He says that you have to see your life and the fruits of the Spirit as a journey, not as a destination. You have to see it as a journey. As a matter of fact, not once but twice he uses the word live. He uses the word walk. And and what he's saying is, is there is a walk with God. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to describe for us how important and how preeminent our walk with God ought to be. In the Old Testament, there's a passage of Scripture that's very familiar to us in Isaiah chapter 40. And and we love the idea that, that Isaiah communicates there when he says, We want to soar on wings like eagles, and we want to run and not grow weary. And then we want to walk and not faint. Now most people look at that passage and they go, yeah, I want to soar on wings like eagles. That's how I want to live my life. I want to live soaring. Now, do you know the apex of that passage of Scripture? is not the soaring, not the running. The greatest thing that Isaiah points to is your daily walk with Jesus. And he said that's really what's transforming. That's really where the vine is pruned. That's where really fruit begins to develop. That's where fruit that remains begins to emerge. That's where fruit really becomes fruitful is when we understand that it is in the daily spiritual journey that we are walking with God that transformation and fruitfulness is occurring. Now, here's the second part of what we want to look at today, the expressions of fruitfulness. And we'll look at it in the last part of what I say today and then in both messages for the next two weeks that I'll be with you. And the idea is that we want to talk about love, joy, and peace in terms of spiritual vitality. The next time I'm with you, we'll look at the relational aspects of it and the final time... Uh, that I'm with you uh, in, in uh, my first four weeks will be when we look together at the idea of our personal life, our life in Christ and the personal stability that he gives us. But let's turn our attention to this idea of spiritual vitality. And they're the first three fruits of the Spirit that talk to us about the fruit of spiritual vitality that includes love, joy, and peace. And let's spend just a minute on each one of these. And we'll begin with love being the first grace of the Spirit-controlled life. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about love. Maybe on Mother's Day, it's a mother's love. Uh, Maybe on Valentine's Day, it's the love of a spouse or a significant other or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But the Bible teaches us that when we think about love, we think about something wholly different than anything else in this world. Uh, One particular song from my generation uh, said, give me a higher love. And and you know, that's exactly what the Bible does for us. As a matter of fact, if you want to look at a passage of Scripture that really identifies what this fruit is, it would be 1 Corinthians 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul breaks down love into several different categories. He breaks down love first and foremost into Everything that love could be compared to, love first and foremost, is better than all of those things. And and he breaks down some of the most important spiritual things that you could think of. Things like prophecy, and mysteries, and truth, and faith, and generosity. I mean, these are all pillars of the Christian faith. And, And what does Paul say? Paul says that love is better than all of these things. And and then, after telling us that love is better than all of these things, he then goes on to break down love into its component parts. And this has often been used to describe a mother's love. You'll recognize the words, love is patient, love is kind, love is serving and gracious, love is not jealous, it doesn't envy. It's humble, courteous, not rude, not self-seeking. It's pure. It does not delight in evil. It's sincere. It rejoices in the truth. Love is protective. It trusts. It hopes. It's enduring. It always perseveres. And he, he pulls love apart and he begins to help us look at each one of those little components that says this is what love really is. And then he closes by saying that love is going to endure beyond all things. He says, where there are prophecies, they'll stop. Where there's revelation, it'll come to an end. Where there are tongues, they'll cease. But here's what he says, love never ends. So so he does these three great works with love. And then he closes with absolutely the most astounding statement. And remember, he's talking about God's love, God's fruitful love that is to be born within our life, that he died in the past for, that he's working through the Spirit today to accomplish. And ultimately, if we're going to look like Jesus, love is going to flow out of our own life. And he makes this statement about that kind of love. He says, the greatest thing in all the world is love. Now, I don't know what you would step back and say the greatest thing in the world is today, but Paul steps back and says the greatest thing in all the world is God's love. Look at the second grace. It's the grace of joy. The, the, the grace of joy is the idea that there, there is more than just a happiness in circumstances, but there is a substance of love that is expressed in happy manners in our life. It was Augustine that said, God loves each one of us like there was only one of us to love. And now we step back and look at this idea of joy and recognize through the book of Philippians that he says that there is an abounding joy that we can enjoy that comes from God. Now, joy may not be the first attribute of God that you think about when you step back and think about God. But that may be from a lack of understanding on our part rather than a lack of revelation from God. I mean, the Bible says that God is in heaven and takes joy in what happens on earth. As a matter of fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that you have become the object of God's joy in your salvation. He looked down and in the moment of your salvation, he took great joy in your salvation the Bible says that Jesus is present with us in the celebrations of our life. Like at the wedding at Cana, he was there. And the Bible says that there was great joy and he worked his first miracle there. What a great celebration that Jesus puts on display, his joy in that moment. And he also, from the cross, the Bible said, had a picture of joy that, that was joy out in front of him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning at shame sitting down at the right hand of the father now now just think about that picture of joy that that I've just recounted for you from the bible the idea is that God is a God of joy God rejoices in the many wonderful things that happens in our life and Jesus himself has personally experienced and made possible joy in our lives And, and the bible tells us that we should Be joyful people as well. I love the story of the Eskimos and the translation of the Bible. uh, When the Bible was being translated into the Eskimo language, there was no word for joy in the Eskimo language. Isn't that an interesting fact? There was no word for joy. And so do you know what what they did? The, the, The translators looked for something in the culture that created happiness within the community and do you know what they looked at and said was the happiest moment in the Eskimo culture? It was when they put food in front of the dogs. They'd put down the food in front of the dogs and the dogs would wag their tail and barking would incur and the villagers would gather. And it became a spectacle that they watched. And so in the translation of the Bible, in the Eskimo language, when they come to the place where the disciples met the resur- resurrected Jesus, do you know what it says? Literally it says... That the disciples were filled with joy, but it uses the word for wagging your tail. So the, the Eskimos were so excited to see Jesus that their tails wagged because that was how happiness and joy was expressed within the culture. Now, I heard another fictional story about an old dog talking to a young dog. The old dog was watching a young dog chase his tail. And as that little dog was chasing his tail round and round and round he went, he finally stopped to catch his breath and the old dog said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to catch my tail. He said, why are you trying to catch your tail? He said, because I think there's joy to be found in my tail. And the old dog looked at the young dog and he said, son, the joy is in the chasing, not in the catching. Can I tell you, that's a really good biblical truth because as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that joy is a byproduct of our faith and our obedience. Joy is not something that you catch and keep when you catch it directly. Joy is a byproduct of being rightly related to God and rightly related to others and rightly related to yourself. And all of a sudden, when you live in faith and obedience to God, then joy is the byproduct. And listen, the power of joy in our life is compelling. Can I tell you, Nehemiah understood that. He was fighting for his life with a sword while building a wall in Jerusalem with his people. And he would declare in the midst of the battle he was fighting and the wall he was building that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, the Bible says the joy of the Lord can be your strength and it can be the fruit of your life. Let's look at the last grace today. Love, joy, and then finally, peace. The peace of God that he gives. What a beautiful picture that peace is that he and he alone can give. The idea is that the peace that God gives is something that we experience. Love, joy, and peace. Do you have peace with God? You know, the Bible says that that peace with God first comes from being rightly related to him. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible says it may be as powerfully and succinctly as possible when he says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're not rightly related to God, then you probably don't have peace. But once you're rightly related to God, then you're plugged in and have access to God's peace. Now, when we say peace, usually we think in terms of a gentle disposition But when the Bible uses the idea of peace, it means so much more. As a matter of fact, peace may be the most comprehensive word used in the Bible for the life's disposition that God wants for us. It's the word shalom. It means an overall well-being. That you have a sense of well-being in the presence of the Lord. Now I'll tell you today, there's a lot of people struggling with sin or struggling in society, or struggling with themselves, and they don't have a lot of peace. I mean, just look around at the world around you. There are a lot of people that have a disposition towards distrust and anger and even violence. You can look at the symptoms that individual people are displaying, and you can see that there is not a lot of peace to be had in the world. I mean, when you have millions of people dying of heart disease caused by stress, tens of thousands of people taking their life in desperation, and tens of millions of people who are dealing with ulcers and indigestion and all sorts of anxiety-related issues, you recognize that peace is really what is needed. I was in the Middle East one time, and I was talking to a Middle Eastern man, and and I said, what do you long for more than anything else? And he said, I long for peace. I was talking to someone else, a Jewish person in South Florida, and I said, what are you longing for? And she thought for a few moments, and I could tell it was a deep question for her, and she looked at me, and she said, I'm looking for peace more than anything else. I was talking to someone in Illinois just a few weeks ago, and as I was there, I said, what are you looking for in life? And he said, I'm really looking for peace in life. You know, Billy Graham wrote that famous track, been distributed in 100 plus languages in the world, and millions of people have read it, and it's called Steps to Peace with God. You know, it really is what people are looking for, and here's what the Bible says. That when we're connected to God and growing in Christ, that there is a spiritual vitality that overflows and it gives us a reservoir of peace. So that when that person cuts you off, or when a neighbor disappoints you, or a friend hurts you, or a family member insults you, that there is a sense of peacefulness that emanates from that spiritual centeredness that we have with God. Let me tell you a final story as I close today. Um, it's a true story about a Catholic nun who regularly speaks at the Ironman competition on the night before the competition takes place. You got the picture? So a Catholic nun stands up, and she's not just a nun there in her habit. She's actually in her uh, track uniform and in, in her um, equipment with her bike and swimming equipment and running equipment. She's a participant. She actually holds several records for her age division and is more than 80 years old when she actually spoke the message that I'm about to share with you. They asked her the first year and subsequently after her first year's message, year after year, to come to the front of the dinner before all of the competitors who had enlisted and earned the right to compete in the Ironman competition. And the message that she gave was this... She said, I can't promise you what will happen tomorrow. She said, I can't promise when you dive in the water that you'll be oriented, that you'll get enough oxygen, that you won't have other swimmers swim on top of you, and even that you'll be able to finish. I don't know what will happen when you get out of the water and you run a marathon but somewhere along the way, your body will revolt, your mind will rebel, and you will struggle and wonder if you can compete. When you get on that bike and you begin that 100-mile journey and you're climbing the hills and you're short on oxygen and your body is in pain and you're wanting to quit, I don't know what you'll think in that moment, but I can assure you of one thing. She said there's one thing that you need to keep in mind. She said there's just one thing that you need to remember. You want to know what that one thing is that she said? Here's what she said. She said, you need to remember that you are created by, known by, and loved by an eternal God who knew you before you were ever born. You see what she was doing? She was putting those competitors in touch with the spiritual vitality that only God can give. (coughs) Listen, that's what Jesus wants for each of us. Out of that reservoir of love and joy and peace, we can be in touch with the eternal God who is overflowing his character traits and his qualities in your and my life. And listen, we can have that spiritual vitality flowing through our hearts and our minds even this very day. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? As we bow our head and close our eyes in just a moment, Jed and the team are going to lead us in a closing song and give us opportunity to meditate upon the things we've heard today. To reflect back on Scripture. To be sensitive and in touch with the Holy Spirit. And to be able, maybe in some cases, to respond to the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus that I've talked about the Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus who saves from our sins. And if you need someone to help walk you through that, you can come forward during the time when we sing or you can just see one of our pastors or me after the service is over. But you see, being in touch with that eternal God and letting His character traits spill over and spill out through you is possible because of what Jesus has done for you. Maybe you need a church home to be a part of. We'd love for you to be a part of this church loving family that encourages their people in following after Jesus. Maybe during the time of singing, you would slip out and come, or after the service is over, you could see Pastor Jed or Pastor Eric or someone else with a name tag on around here, and they'll be able to help you. But whatever it is you need to do, I can promise you this. The most important thing you can do is to be in touch with the eternal God who knows you, who loves you, who created you, and who wants His fruitfulness to spill out through your daily living. God, use these moments of self-reflection and spiritual reflection to help us be more of the people you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.